Hey there, welcome back to Inside the Daily Press, the official podcast of the Santa Monica Daily Press. So if you're wondering what the most important stories we wrote this year, this is your podcast. This is a time of year where we're looking back at the stories we wrote and how they changed our community. Today, editor Matt Hall will be talking shop with senior reporter Madeline Pauker about the most important and impactful stories we wrote this year. So let's get into it. All right, Maddie. So why don't you tell us what your top five most important stories of the year are? I would have to say the top would be the upcoming state mandate to build somewhere in the range of 9,000 homes uh, in Santa Monica over the next decade. So from 2021 to 2029, um, kind of a sleeper hit. But in terms of what's going to make the most material change to the way Santa Monica plans um, development and you know what we actually see uh, in the city, that would have to be the, the most important um, news story of the year. All right. So you're talking about the regional allocation whereby a local body that administers Southern California governments makes recommendations to the state regarding how much housing everybody has to build in order to meet these big statewide goals. Um, What happened this year is there was some controversy amongst the different municipalities that forced some cities to take a larger share of that housing than they would traditionally, even though some of them, like Santa Monica, has actually met its goals in the past. That's right. Um, And those communities have historically been able to shirk this uh, eight year allocation. You know, it's a a cycle uh, that happens every eight years. And since this was put into place in the 1950s, places like Culver City um, or Beverly Hills have been able to build very few homes compared to the amount of jobs um, that are that were created there um, and their proximity to high quality public transit. Um, Santa Monica has been pretty good over the years in meeting its arena allocations, um, but they've historically only been, you know, maybe 2,000 units over eight years. So this marks a major um, shift in how the state is thinking about where to build housing. Essentially, they're trying to cut down on long commutes and sprawl in Southern California and concentrate new development um, around areas where people are maybe less likely to need a car or, you know, don't have to spend an hour and a half commuting in from the valley to get to Santa Monica. So that's kind of the idea behind the mandate. So while Santa Monica has historically met its RENA targets, uh, this new allocation comes with an added challenge. A little more than half of the 9,000 units will be required to be affordable at various income levels, um, and that's prompted some questioning among local officials as to what new strategies uh, the city will have to adopt to meet that target, because right now the city pretty much relies on inclusionary housing um, by for-profit developers, you know, including a certain percentage of affordable housing in their new developments as required by local law. And um, it also relies on nonprofits like Community Corporation of Santa Monica to build 100% affordable housing. So um, in thinking about how to meet the new target, um, the city has considered, you know, really relaxing development standards for 100% affordable projects, new financing strategies, really trying to encourage uh, nonprofit developers to build here um, and build taller and more densely than they have in the past. Um, And the city is also looking at new strategies for inclusionary uh, affordable housing as well. All right, cool. So what's what's next on your list? Uh, Next would probably be CVRA, um, the CVRA case. That is some the, big... The California Voting Rights Act case that will force the city to move to district-based elections if 
the uh, appeal is denied sometime in 2020. Right. So the, the big news this year was that uh, a judge did rule in favor of the plaintiffs um, and, you know, said that Santa Monica did have uh, a history of racially polarized elections and ordered um, first ordered the council to vacate their seats, which was um, stayed pending appeal um, and ordered an election uh, for July 2020 that would be held along district lines um, using a map drawn by the plaintiffs. So that does have, uh, there's a possibility that that ruling and that election could completely upend um, the political status quo in Santa Monica. Um, And I think it's really forcing the city to uh, do some reckoning. Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting one because it's, it, it will either be incredibly important or it will mean nothing because right. if right if if the city's appeal is denied then it's incredibly important and it reshapes Santa Monica politics for the foreseeable future if the city wins its appeal everything goes back to status quo and nothing changes so yeah that's an interesting one where i think i think it's one of the most important stories of the year this year for sure it will be a, an interesting data point next year for sure. I just It's going to be interesting to see which way that goes. It's rare that you get a story that's all or nothing. Either it foundationally changes all of Santa Monica or it means nothing and will be totally ignored. <laughs> so I, I think that's an interesting one. Um, so what else, what else is on your list? Uh, this year saw maybe 16 uh, lawsuits from... Uh, alleged victims of Eric Euler, the city employee and former PAL employee, uh, PAL volunteer, who uh, was arrested last year on child molestation charges. Um, he killed himself uh, before he was scheduled to appear in court. Um, but in 2019, uh, several, you know, at least a dozen um, individual victims have come forward and have sued the city. Um, and in some cases, the Police Activities League is a national organization. Um, so if, you know, depending on the outcome of those lawsuits, that could mean a huge financial liability uh, for the city and for PAL. Yeah, and what's interesting there is that there was actually a, there's a woman who's come forward and sued PAL over a separate uh, molestation yes. allegation independent from Euler. And prior to Euler, there was an accusation that a PAL volunteer was behaving inappropriately towards students. Um, so they've, they've had a couple of problems there. And while what I think is also interesting about this story is this, to me, is part of a trend in this sort of institutionalized abuse that is going on in the country, right? So here we had it at PAL. We didn't have it here at Catholic Church or the Boy Scouts, but the Catholic Church and the Boy Scouts are both facing massive lawsuits nationwide about a similar kind of trend where you have people in positions of power, particularly who are put in positions of power over youth, vastly mis- vastly abusing those youth and, and misappropriating their power. And so to me, that's an interesting story, not only because it has a, you know, huge local applications, but also because it is an example of a terrible and shameful national trend that also impacted us here, albeit say slightly different flavor, right? It wasn't the Catholic Church, wasn't Boy Scouts. Here it was a guy at PAL, but to me, very much connected to that bigger national kind of problem that has been going on. Yeah. Um, and, you know, similar to the Boy Scouts and the Catholic Church, the scandal has prompted the city to um, review its policies and procedures that it 
has for youth programs and um, change those. We should be getting some information about what the exact changes are next year. Um, but there, there was a presentation a couple months ago from an outside consultant about, you know, just standardizing who has access to children, you know, making sure that everyone is a mandated reporter. So there are some changes um, to come out of this. Gotcha. All right. So that was one, two, and three. What's four? So another important story this year uh, would be the changes in the homeless population, um, according to the 2019 homeless count. Um, And it's newsy because it isn't actually that newsy at all. The population only grew by 3% locally, um, even as it, it grew uh, by 12 to 16% um, in LA County and in LA, in the city of LA and LA County, respectively. Um, and so the 3% increase in the population last year here in Santa Monica follows double digit increases over the last couple of years. So, you know, it is a, it is a point in time count. So it was conducted on one night in January, 2019, but it could be an indication that the growth of the homeless population here is stabilizing. I think we'll have to wait until uh, next month's results. Uh, the count will be held next month, but we won't get the results until several months after. But I think when we look at the 2020 count and the 2019 count, we'll be able to see, you know, is that 3% growth an anomaly? And will is the population still increasing dramatically? Or is it actually leveling off? Yeah, so for me, for me, homelessness is the is the single most important subject, and I think it connects to two of the most important individual stories that we wrote. So homelessness here in Santa Monica has waxed and waned in terms of public interest. You go back to 2014, 2015, no one gave a crap about homelessness. It wasn't on the front of anyone's agenda. It wasn't a topic of discussion in the elections. It wasn't services weren't being talked about for homeless individuals. Like it just wasn't what people cared about. Now, it hasn't always been that way. You go back years upon years upon years, you can find these boom and bust cycles of all of a sudden homelessness becomes this huge problem that everybody cares about. And then, and then providing food to homeless people is controversial and providing shelter is controversial. And what can we do? And people get hired to administer the problem. And either the problem gets slightly better, or something else makes people angry and they move on. And right now we're very much in the upswing, possibly at the peak of public interest in homelessness, which I think leads to two of the most important individual stories we wrote. I think the Van Lord story was incredibly important because it highlights some of the diversity amongst homelessness as a subject, right? Van Lord was about a dude renting, a homeless guy renting vans to other homeless people. So it touched on some of the economics around homelessness. It talked about the struggles people have finding shelter. It talked about some of the loopholes and problems in local laws related to car camping and camping on the street. And so I think that was a very important news story for the way, sort of for the way it introduced the subject and broadened, I th- hopefully broadened some people's horizons around what homelessness means. The other story that I think is critically important on that subject is the story about the statue that went up where the former uh, Savings and Loans mural used to be on Wilshire. And I think that one's critically important for kind of a different reason, or similar but different. That statue is about getting in people's faces and making them angry and getting people to actually realize there's a crisis. It's not a piece of art 
designed to beautify a building. It's not a postcard. It's not a selfie station. Like it is what I think the main purpose of public art should be. It's somewhat adversarial. It's there to agitate. It's there to provoke thought. I think that's a critically important story because that is an example of the public awareness cresting and rising, right? Here's an artist who looked around and said, holy crap, this is a major issue. What can I do about it? And he did something, right? He did what he could do as an artist. And I think that's an example of the public and people around challenging themselves, looking to get involved, looking to change the status quo by doing something. And so I think I think that was a very important story to write because it, like I say, highlights what people can do. It highlights someone doing something. And I think I personally think that artist is on the right path in that people do need to be challenged. People need to understand it's a crisis. People need to understand that simply complaining about it on Facebook isn't going to solve anything. You have to do something. And if what makes you do something is anger, great, then that guy's going to make you angry and make you do something because calls for compassion or calls for economic aid, whatever, those haven't worked. So he's going to try a different track. So like I say, yeah, I think that's that's a very important topic. I think those are two particularly important stories. Um, and I think they're tied to and connected to your fifth point, right? They're not causal, but connected. Yes. Um, the fifth point being that uh, crime, serious crime spiked uh, 8% uh, last year in 2018. And then year on year, um, so far in 2019, it's um, gone down by... I can't remember the exact percentage, uh, but I think around around the same, so around 8%. Um, and the city did hire a new police chief last year, um, Cynthia Renaud. She has developed some new strategies, um, hired more officers, about 20 more officers, uh, put them in you know, patrol-facing units, um, and focused on problem areas like the parking garages downtown, um, there's also been an expanded uh, non-police ambassador presence in the parks downtown, um, most recently in uh, Reed Park, after residents said that, you know, crime was an issue there. Um, and it is connected to the homeless population in, in those instances, but as you said, not causal. Um, and so even though the police department has released information that, that crime is down so far this year in 2019, um, a lot of residents ca- kind of can't accept that um, that fact. And what we've been seeing is, you know, people saying that the statistics are wrong, um, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's no evidence that statistics are wrong. No of one's course. pointing to anything. There's no, no evidence that the police are lying. But there have been some spectacular crimes, and indeed there are always spectacular crimes, but there have been several back-to-back Um, particularly in and around Montana Avenue, right? There's been uh, bank robberies. There's been people held up at gunpoint. And in in several of those cases, the individuals have just escaped. They just walked away into the crowd or drove off, uh, drove into the sunset and disappeared. And I, I think that's partly what is causing some of the public concern is that there are, there are spectacular cases, right? Crazy homeless dude tried to rob an armored truck with a knife, right? You know, it doesn't matter that if you're the public and you hear that, it you don't necessarily see it as, well, there were 25 less car break-ins that month. You see there was a guy who tried to rob an armored truck with a knife, 
and you know a stormtrooper-esque security guard who fired multiple times at a guy running away and missed right like it was a crazy crazy situation that upsets the public as does you know there was a bomb scare turned out not to be a bomb but someone thought there was a suspicious package on the promenade shut everything down there was another suspicious package not too long after that so i think the public distinctly feels less safe now than they have done over previous years right and i think some of it is there has all there was an increase in property crimes not causal to homeless but connected therein because you have individuals who know that they can get away with low-level kinds of crime, right? If you steal less than $950, you're not going to jail. People know that. They're able to commit multiple crimes and not go to jail. So even if there has been a decrease, we still have this kind of public unrest around these spectacular incidences. And I don't know how what the police are going to do to solve that other than catch people, right? You start catching people, you start preventing some of the crimes, you start discouraging people from coming here to commit crimes we'll see but i think i don't think that story is going to go away until there is a change in the law that makes it more difficult for people to get out of jail and increases penalties for the low-level crimes we'll see but crime so crime and homelessness are actually connected to what i think is one of the bigger trends which is the economics of the city I think the retail, the decline of retail, and the challenge with finding models that enable businesses, brick-and-mortar businesses, to stay open is going to be a huge challenge. And I think that was a big, important story. While we didn't have a single individual story that I think epitomizes it, I think that trend is huge. Because go back to the darker days of Santa Monica, when the city was Dogtown and Z-Boys, and it really was far more dangerous, far more gritty, far less appealing as a place to live. And a big part of that was the retail districts were terrible. There weren't places where people could gather. There wasn't an an economy in place. There weren't jobs. If retail continues to decline, if people can't afford to keep their businesses open because of whether it's wages or whether it's rent or whether it's crime and homelessness that keep businesses from being able to attract customers, right? If customers start to disappear, businesses will go under. If businesses can't pay their bills, businesses will go under. Those two things can combine into a death spiral for a shopping area. We're not at that point yet, but I don't think we're super far away from that either. And so I think that's an important story that we talked about a lot this year in individual stories, right? We wrote about businesses closing. We've written about the issues, but I think that's an important point, and I think that's something that I don't think a lot of elected officials or even necessarily residents have connected the dots on, which is if we don't address these symptoms, businesses are going to go under. Once you end up with blight, you end up in a death spiral. Once that happens, it's very difficult to pull out and you start to attract more crime and everything. Everything goes downhill at that point. So for me, that's that's the big the story that I'm most interested in us following next year. Yeah, um, we did follow that with Promenade 3.0 as well, and that effort to, you know, remake the Promenade um, as traditional retail struggles. Um, You know, there's a lot of talk about breweries and bars and restaurants and um, having businesses that take up only the back half of the building and open onto the alley. It's it's really, um, the vision is that it will be more of a nightlife destination, more of a dining destination, um, rather than, you know, Forever 21, which went bankrupt or, um, 
you know, other kind of fast fashion retailers that are probably not going to hold up um, throughout the decade. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll see. Like, no one, no, no one knows. That's a simple answer. No one knows what the future is, right? We've got a new virtual reality place opening on the promenade, right? Which will be two, two different virtual reality experiences on the promenade. You've got Model Land supposedly supposed to open at the mall. You've got the Children's Museum. I mean, there are people who are experimenting, and experimentation is great. I am a huge believer that you have to experiment. We don't know what's going to succeed. Hopefully, someone finds the magic bullet, right? I, we'll see. I don't know. Main Street certainly needs as much help as the Promenade, even Montana. You know, there's a small shopping district on, on Ocean Park, which actually is surviving fairly well, although they still have turnover now. Like, there's a bunch of redevelopment up there. So, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is, but I do think that's an important important story that we did this year. Uh, all right. So those, those are it, I think, right? Those, those are your top five. Those, I, I agree with most of those. So I think that's it for our most important stories of the year. And we will come back to the podcast sometime in the future, I guess, and talk about any of these subjects if they come up again. All right. Thank you, Maddie. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today on Inside the Daily Press. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to your podcast whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or elsewhere. Music for the Inside the Daily Press podcast is brought to you by The Brig Band. The Brig Band is an L.A. jam band that has been playing live since 2002. Regular members and guests have played professionally with everyone from Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, and Stevie Wonder to The Doors, Fishbone, and Steely Dan. To find out where and when you can hear them live, head to thebrigband.com.